What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another Whiskey Web and Whatnot with myself, Robbie Wagner, and my co-host, as always, Charles William Carpenter the Third. Third, 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 third. <laughs> I always wanted an echo effect. Sorry. Didn't finish my intro chunk. What are you doing? Pablo is with us today. I would try to pronounce your last name, but I would do it poorly if you would like to um, introduce yourself and give our listeners a few sentences about who you are and what you do. Sure. So uh, thank you for having me. It's really exciting. I'm Pablo Ruiz Muzquiz, and uh, I'm CEO at Pimpot. And my background is in physics and computer science, but I'm now an open source hacker and entrepreneur. And I'm really um, having great fun building the next design code tool that's open source and based on open standards. Awesome. Nice, nice. Yeah, we'll dig a lot more into that later. But first, we always have to start with whiskey. So today we have the Willet Rye. I don't know, I'm trying to put this in my camera, but I guess it doesn't matter. We'll, they won't publish my video. <laughs> but <laughs> I have the same bottle here. Yeah, we hope. We got probably some different batches or whatever because uh, mm. Robbie notes in the show notes that his is 108.2 proof. Mine is 107.4. Hmm. His is 110.4. Mine is 11.04. Whoa, nice. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's just going to be the nature of the game because they make them pretty small batch per distillation. So it's fairly normal for that to be the case, but we all got four years, probably the same mash bill. So this is a 74% rye, 11% corn, 15% malted barley. Oh, okay, it's a blend. And then Robbie put something about there's also a low rye mash bill as well. Aged and hand-selected white oak barrels for four years. I've actually been to this distillery a couple of times. It's a really cool place. Small, but it's very cool. Oh, that's a fail. What happened? My plastic cap popped off of the top of the Uh-oh. thing, so I might need an extra second here. <laughs> I'm going to use some highly technical tools. You can't see in the video, but I'll be using my teeth to pull out the cork. Yeah. I was waiting for you to get your huge knife out, and that was going to be scary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just said something before we started about not yeah. using knives and risking life and limb. Cool. All right, we're good. Okay, so I'll start with a little sniff, possibly. Smells like rye. Yes, definitely has a lot of spice initially mm-hmm. for me. Hmm. It smells kind of, um, I get a little bit of uh, some other arbitrary descriptors, like a pile of fall leaves. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know that I would say that. Leaves can be kind of musty and gross sometimes. Hmm. Fresh leaves, maybe. Oh. Like a little bit of, uh, yeah. I don't know. It's spicy. It's got some black pepper, of course, and uh, yeah, some various spices. I don't know. I would say it has a more of a traditional rye-like flavor. Mm-hmm. Black pepper initially, a little bit of leatheriness to it mm-hmm. for me. Yeah, maybe some uh, some cinnamon on the finish. Yeah. And that nice warm hug down the throat. So mm-hmm. I like that. This is in my... <laughs> This is my jam when it's over 100 proof. I need that. I need to feel that I'm not having soda. <laughs> what do you think, Pablo? Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm not into whiskey, so <laughs> I'm familiar with with everything here. But um, I think I'll go for the nice hug that you said. I do appreciate that with the warmth and the, um, I don't know, it felt constant and uh, continuous. And uh, But yeah, also I think I... For me, it tastes a bit like caramel mm. at some point. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and spicy. Yeah, definitely uh, spicy at the beginning. But yeah, as I said, yeah, super no expert at all in things whiskey. Well, we're not either, really. Yeah, we're just faking it. <laughs> you know, this is all an act, right? <laughs> Making up. Yeah. Drinking a lot of it doesn't necessarily make you an expert. That's the spoiler, <laughs> unfortunately. I was to say, I like how you were drinking from a wine glass, giving you that. Yeah, well, I... I we do have uh, a collection of different glasses here. It's mostly for beer and mead. Oh, yes. To be honest. But yeah, I, I got to find one one appropriate for whiskey tasting, yeah. That's perfect. I think it's great. Yeah, that's uh, we'll put a pin in that one. I believe that's on the list of whatnot items mm-hmm. we're going to bring up and <laughs> chat about a little yeah. bit. So we'll get there. 
So as experts in the field of whiskey tasting, we have a highly scientific system for rating them. Uh, one day tentacles, one being the worst thing you've ever had. Please never give me this again. Eight being the most amazing thing. I would like it every day. In fact, let's replace water with it. <laughs> and I know you said you don't have a lot of whiskeys. And I don't want to like influence, though, your opinion overall on this particular one. So I'm happy to let you go ahead and go first and see and just what you have had for whiskeys, how this might rate for you. Well, I think that the closest ever I've been to a proper whiskey tasting was in Orkney Island, north of Scotland. So Kickwall. There's a long story there, but I had a ton of whiskey. And this one is different because it's... I really like it. Overall, uh, on that scale, I would say for me, it's seven tentacles. Wonderful. So nice. Wonderful. Good rating. Yeah, I think that's great. I'm glad. I'm glad we didn't shaft you with something you want to throw away down the, <laughs> yeah, down the drain. So this is good. Yeah. All right, Robbie, as the self-described rye aficionado, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's hard for me to place it amongst all the ryes we've had. But I would agree that it's good. I would say six, maybe six and a half. Pretty good. Something like that. Yeah. What do you think, Chuck? Well, I'm a little bit of a Willet fanboy. This was like their first non-sourced distillate under the Willet label. So like was released as a two year and now they've done three and four year ones. So I really like it. I think with each version that has a little more age to it, it gets even better for me. Unfortunately, it used to be like $55, and now I'm seeing the prices creep up to $75 and $80, so that's kind of a bummer in comparison to some others. But in the realm of things where it is pleasant tasting, has very traditional rye notes, though, and has the proof that I enjoy, I'm giving it a 7. I like would come back to this often and do often recommend it. So Cool. So it's good. Because spoiler is I've had it many times before. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I haven't. Chuck has had a lot of whiskey, but I'm still learning. <laughs> yeah, we all strive for expertise. Yeah, cool. So a lot of people probably have noticed if they've been on Twitter or just been anywhere on the Internet that Figma got acquired by Adobe, which was a big thing, which I don't know uh, how things were going before that, but I think it really helped uh, Pinpot become this thing people had heard of and like an alternative for them to use. So tell us a little bit about Penpot and uh, what, you know, how it compares to Figma, what it does, that kind of stuff. So while well, Penpot was an idea that existed already five years ago okay. at the uh, parent company, which is Kaleidos, as in Kaleidoscope. So Kaleidos in Greek means of a beautiful shape. So you can see that rooting calligraphy, for instance. And uh, we had this motto, that was beautiful code. So Kaleidos, beautiful code. And we still are an open source company. Back then, we would do projects for other people. We would just for a fee, you know, build your amazing technology, your product, whatever. You, know, you could be a startup or a big corporation. And we wanted at some point designers at Kaleidos, since we were pro open source, demanded that they had the same first class citizenship that developers had in open source with a toolkit and the tools and databases and frameworks and, you know, whatnot, right? It was, mm -hmm. they felt that they were lagging behind in terms of the choices. And since there was no proper real-time collaboration, design and prototyping tool in open source, they asked if they could use Figma. I'm breaking their secret rule of only using open source <laughs> because we do believe in means, not only in ends. So tools matter. These tools do matter for us. And we have this very existential crisis at a company called Kaleidos Open Source. That's the full name. Where these, our beloved designers, which we respected and admired and loved, were asking, were begging to be as productive as developers in their daily work. And so they asked to... So you have that exception, basically, and they asked for Figma because there was no other choice. It was obvious that they were going to ask for Figma. And so we, we understood the pain. Of course, we did because we're not psychopaths <laughs> or perhaps. And we conceded, but with one condition, that we will build the open source Figma killer. 
So this would be a temporary solution. And on top of that, we, do, we didn't want to create just a clone, like an open source clone or something that's proprietary and always play catch up. You know this story. Mm-hmm. That happens a lot. Like a pale reflection, but it's open source, so it's good. We haven't done that ever with our other open source product, which is Taiga. It's an agile tool. It's not a clone of anything. It's its own thing. So Pempot should be its own thing. And to do that, we had to go beyond Figma. And to go beyond Figma, we wanted to make sure that it was not only for designers. It was not a UX UI tool for collaboration between designers, but between designers and developers. So we started building that. Initially, it was called UXbox. Pretty bad name <laughs> for many <laughs> trademark issues uh, there. But yeah, two years ago, we renamed that to Penpot. Actually, it's the logo. It was always there. Mm-hmm. It was just a matter of saying, okay, what's the name of the logo? Uh, that's a Penpot. Okay, mm. let's call it Penpot. We announced that we were doing that seriously at FOSDEM 2020. So that's in Brussels. This big event. By the way, what happened with OSCON? It's dead now, right? Anyway, we in Europe, we still have FOSDEM. And it's 6,000, 7,000 hackers meeting in, in a weekend. And we announced that we were doing this for serious. Like, for real, this, this was happening. And so initially, we started with a designer-first approach so that designers would f- feel familiar, would see familiar territory there. They could migrate and get the UI, the productivity, and all that. But once we got to, uh, to that point, we needed to depart from that paradigm and make sure that developers would feel at home in such a tool. And that means changing what the tool does, how it behaves, how the feedback loop is shaped, but also what do you mean by design and what do you mean by code? And that is what we've been building for two years now. And when Adobe acquired Figma, it was this super timing. We were really lucky, extremely lucky, because it caught us by surprise, as everyone, I think, but not unprepared, because we had been building a designer's first experience so that when designers were desperately looking for an alternative, because they were, it was a big emotional distress, it's nothing like I've ever seen after an acquisition. In my, like, Microsoft acquired GitHub, it looked like it was this kind of distress. This was bigger. Yeah. And it hasn't faded away, by the way. Uh, if our metrics tell us something, is that it didn't fade away. It was not just one day that people felt, uh, you know, sad and then they won with their lives the next day. No, it's a long-lasting effect. So they found out for the first time an open-source design and prototyping tool that was actually quite neat and feature-complete. It lacked a couple of things like advanced components and auto layout, but all in all. It was um, super valid, a solid alternative. And their developers, their developer peers were lobbying hard for it. So they, they started trying it out and they found that they like it. And they then invited developers and they, of course developers were super excited about an open source design tool that welcomed them. So before Figma Gate, which is what, how we call that uh, <laughs> internally, yeah. we were having great traction we were having our seed series, we had our series A, all that stuff. So we had all the metrics that you would expect from a startup, building the community, building the contribution cycle, having an honest conversation across social media and um, being quite fast in terms of features being added to the tool. So we had all that and we could prove that we were worthy of an alternative. But I also have to say and admit that the acquisition just propelled that, the skyrocket that and brought us two years from the future in a single day. That's September 15th. I will never forget that date <laughs> because it really, it was it actually, we had an offsite event. We were all like in one place having a strategic hands-on offsite event. And it was, we had a great party that night <laughs> because it was, <laughs> Adobe was obviously the worst possible acquirer for Figma. Yeah. All the best. If you right. look at yeah. Pempot. Yeah, I think there's a lot of hatred of Adobe yeah. for many, many years of them doing things that people don't like. So, yeah. <laughs> but they had $20 billion to spend 
Right, exactly. Well, it's like you can't beat them, join them ideology. And Adobe has applied that same strategy many, many times over. AEM, Adobe Experience Manager, that was an acquisition thing to get an actual CMS into their system because they couldn't do it, right? I mean, there wasn't Flash and Fireworks an acquisition as well from uh, Macromedia? Mm, yep, yep. Right? They did that before too. So they've, you know, there's definitely a history of acquisition over trying to create a competitive product or iterate an existing established product. They kind of tend to think that we're the Adobe, you just are going to stick with us. And then if it doesn't happen, they just go get you. So I guess if you were a Figma employee or a founder with a lot of shares, it's a pretty great thing. But outside of that, <laughs> yeah, you know. Okay, but I have a question for you. Yeah. This defensive move, sort of the defensive acquisition, mm -hmm. I totally get it uh, in terms of uh, mindshare, brand awareness, and all that. Like it was now impossible for Adobe and Adobe XD to play catch up. Everyone was saying, we had previous tweets saying the only tools that prove they can move fast are Figma and Pempot. Mm. What about Adobe XD? So we had those tweets, you know, early in the year. Yep. And also from Figma's point of view, I have my own theories, but perhaps they had this Series D, Series D, sorry, Series D last year mm. at a 10 billion valuation. Right. Sounded like a pre-IPO to me, that then the recession sort of looms and someone gets nervous about growth and not being able to deliver. Yep. I don't know. That's my theory. I don't have inside information. But why 20 billion? 20 billion tells us something. We're missing, you know, someone is a fool. Either I'm a fool or someone high up in the hierarchy at Adobe is a fool. Yeah. I'm not sure. I prefer to think I'm a fool because 20 billion is a ton of money. It's 50 ARR. Yeah. So I have my own theory, but do you have any comments on why 20 billion? I'd say I'm out of my depth in terms of trying to like quantify some of these uh, valuations that obviously occurred early in booms and when VCs had tons of money. And that was as soon as eight to 12 months ago. And so you were pushing these valuations so early in the um, raise cycles for some of these companies that like, yeah, how are you ever going to necessarily like become profitable based on some of those early assumptions? I don't know. I think there's probably some financial trickery happening in the background and essentially mm -hmm. for Adobe to get, yeah, there's some trickery and inflation to get cash injections at various times. And then essentially for Adobe to squash this bug, while $20 billion is a lot of money, they've got a pretty long runway to sort of get there. And so it's kind of fine, right? You'll have probably investors just trying to, basically forcing Adobe to make them a profit. Like, no, this is gonna be a profit center because this is we made some high bets on this. And so if you want it, you're gonna to have to really pay up. Yeah. Something like that is my guess. I think that it's mm -hmm. purely arbitrarily having not been educated on what actually happened. I'm thinking, you know, Figma was like, we're worth 10 billion. We've been valued at that. That's what we've been raising at. You know, if you really want us, pay us double. And then they were probably like, okay. <laughs> you know, yeah. I think they were trying to stick to their guns of like, we don't really want to be acquired. We're, we feel like we're doing a good job, but if you pay us a ridiculous amount of money, We'll do it. And then they were like, okay, we can do that. Yeah. And once an <laughs> offer like that goes to the board, everybody's going to say yes. You're going to get, it doesn't matter what, you know, the CEO wants to do. He has to. Even if you were born with this quote saying, we are the anti-Adobe, right? Because that was the beginning of Figma. Yeah. For people that are not familiar with this design ecosystem, I tried to tell mm -hmm. them that what just happened is that if... Emperor Palpatine just hired Princess Leia. Yeah. <laughs> so what if you were part of the rebellion? What then? Because that is betrayal. That the, the feeling is betrayal because this actually some delusional designers perhaps actually told me, we thought we were going to acquire Adobe, that Figma would lead us to the ultimate vendetta and be so big that, we, I mean, delusional, childish dreams, they don't understand the relative sizes of companies. Yeah. But that was that was a dream, and I mean that didn't happen. It actually, occurred the quite the opposite. I have my theory here. Well, first, 
I think acquisition was plan B, not plan A. Plan A was IPO. Yep. That was natural for me to think about Figma's future. But then suddenly things are not looking great and you have to go to plan B because perhaps you're burning cash. I mean, it's quite a solid money-making company, but still the expectations for any Series A investor uh, with a valuation of 20 billion are still high, right? So yeah. And that's still 25 ARR, right? So still uh, a ton. So that's plan B. Now, who is going to acquire you? I think it's going to be either Adobe or Microsoft. Yeah. So that only two. But I think the reason Adobe was happy to send 20 billion through the wire was because, and this is hinted at what they said, the, the chairman, I think, the president of Adobe said, which is super bullshit today, <laughs> but not in the long term, is that Adobe thinks as a nation state in terms of the long, long term. And the long, long term for Adobe is developers, mm. not designers. To, because to be honest, Figma already owns pretty much like 80% of designers. So what is left is developers. And the ratio these days is one designer per eight developers. That's on average per team right. worldwide. So one designer, oh. it used to be worse. It used to be one designer per 15 developers. But now full-time equivalent is one to eight. It's, and it, I mean... Our team is one to two, super weird, because we have this other way of building teams. But on average, it's one to eight. So you have eight times more developers out there mm. that you could um, ask for some money. And it, Adobe is not famous. It's not well known to be a developer suite. So I think that the battleground, and this is quite relevant for us, since we are the bridge between designers and developers, is going to be the developer battleground yeah. that is going to be quite relevant in the next couple of years who will win the hearts of developers we'll see but i think we stand a pretty good chance yeah i think that's a really smart interesting play that i never considered with these tools in particular because i do believe that you know in spite of like some recessional things happening and whatnot around the marketplace for developers to get a job, I think that there's going to be more and more developers required worldwide across all companies, whether you're a technology company or not. Technology is the next battlefront. It's a current battlefront and it's only gaining more and more traction. There's a lot of people entering that career space to try to start filling that. And so a massive niche is to give them improved developer tools. So that's exactly what Microsoft has done. They've pivoted over and instead trying to be the licensing company for enterprise, they want to really address the developer space and the developer experience space. So Adobe looking at that market space and like you said, the volume that's going to increase there, that really tracks for me. That makes a lot of sense of like, because they do, you know, address a lot of verticals outside of just designers for the web, right? Like art in general, artists and digital artists and people in the photography space and all that. They're like covering that really well. But look at this entire group of individuals that basically paid for their work, creative work in a way. We're not addressing them. Dreamweaver's not doing it. So <laughs> how else are we going to get there? That's interesting. I mean, if you look at how people, did the, both sides address this acquisition, Adobe will tell their shareholders, look, we're getting, of course, they cannot say we're getting designers because that's not a thin thing to say to, you know, you should have the designers. But so they're saying we are getting developers on board. This is exciting for us. But Figma is not saying that. Figma CEO is not saying that. It's saying we are getting the Adobe suite. They are not saying we are bringing developers on board because they don't have developers. Right. Figma is not welcoming developers. You don't have the GitHub social login there if it if you want a, like a signal. Yeah. So I don't think anyone is being foolish here. But they, I mean, of course, and after 20 billion acquisition, you need to, to go back to your choir and tell things they want to listen to and to support you with. But it's different perspectives of how the two companies sell this to their audience. Now, 
why we're excited at Pempot is that we were born with this code is design mindset. So we go for SVG as a native format. So it's 100% open standards, no translation. The design is a code. Of course, we have real-time collaboration. This is web-based and all that. I mean, that's a commodity now, yeah. right? And beyond that, of course, you get your auto layouts, but with a twist. We're calling that layout flex. So it's already layout flex, layout grid, layout AI. Mm. Who cares? We just give code-first abstractions to whatever layout design is there. So designers are happy to just inject their behavioral rules, knowing that that is already valid code. And that, of course, opens up a ton of potential because then that bit of code can get into GitOps with no human intervention. And actually, full duplex, you could actually change that piece of CSS in your Git repo and change the design, you know, going back to Penpot. That is where the magic happens. Mm. And that is where design finally scales up. So I'm sure the competition will try and accelerate or make it easier for design to become code with the least loss in translation. But as long as there is translation, there is loss. And you have to sort out the full duplex. It's not just one way. We don't just want to accelerate design into code, but also why not code into design? So we are looking at this AI, GPT, <laughs> chat, whatever, mm-hmm. and you, you think how people would actually code design, just using code, and that would be native to Pempot because it's just text file following standard rules. So I think I wouldn't be surprised if Figma very soon will start launching like this experiments around breaching the gap between designers and coders we hope to be able to make a point saying, too late, you're now playing catch up with us. Well, exactly what I was going to say. That's the exact point I was going to say is that even with this particular move, with the next big player in the space, they're already still going to be playing the catch up game. Like, oh, great, you got two thirds of the way there, but you've still got to put resources and like make some concerted efforts. And also understanding your user base, because maybe that's like a thing that's always been conflated for them to begin with is that, they just don't get it. So it doesn't mean that, you know, this injection of cash is going to like start to shift the paradigm there. Also, I wanted to kind of come back to one point that you made earlier, which is around the whole Figma gate occurs and you're seeing in your metrics. Hey, why not? Just call it what it is. <laughs> yeah. You're seeing in your metrics that people made a shift and they're actually staying, they're staying to play. I think that's a testament to your product and the timing then because they're not coming on board to be like, I'm angry and I'm gonna try another thing, but also I'm lazy and I don't wanna learn something new and I'm productive over here still, or you know, I just still feel like this is effective. And not that I wanna compare the two necessarily because obviously it's a little different, but like Elon's takeover of Twitter, right? had a whole massive exodus to a degree. And yet I think the inverse has happened there and that lots of people either maintain their Twitter also or have just kind of come back because it's still kind of the spot to easily have these cross-boundary connections. And you're able to just like take it. You can either go into your closed community, which like how is that different from Discord necessarily, your like-minded, subject-minded community, or you come back to the open thing. So it's interesting to say that, like, this thing didn't really do it for us, so we're coming back to the thing in spite of, you know, the big bad Elon. And in your case, people are saying, our cherished and loved tool now went down a different path. We came over to Penpot, and it's like, we're very happy to be there. Well, I think there are two differences with the uh, Twitter and Mastodon. By the way, in Figma Gate, they call themselves refugees, like Figma refugees. So yeah, it's, it's that <laughs> type of vocabulary. It's their their terms, you know. I, and that might be a little more a little extreme, but uh, but oh I, yeah, oh yeah, I enjoy it. <laughs> That's how they felt. So I think two two differences here. First, in our case, developers those eight to one in the ratio. Please don't forget that. Developers are lobbying hard. Like they, are, they have agency and they have a ton of power. Too much power, in my opinion. That's my background. Yeah. 
but uh, too much power, too much decision-making power, and they are lobbying hard for Pemper because it's just the natural tool for them. Whether they understand the potential or not, it's what they prefer. So in that sense, if they have to choose, you know, amidst the Figma gate crisis, yep. it's easy for them to stick with Pempot in the long term. So I think that's the difference with Mastodon in some ways, that you have a extremely loyal, outnumbering you uh, audience in terms of developers. But then what about designers? Because after all, this is a UX UI tool. We didn't want to make the mistake and we didn't make that mistake. And now we are profiting from that, where people say, if you're going to develop an open source, and this is key, I think this is, resonates with the audience and you, I hope, people will tell us, also investors, very smart investors will tell us not so smart things. If you're going to develop an open source design tool, you have to go first with developers because that's where your contribution community is. And we say, not at all. Sorry, but not sorry, because we need designers to feel excited about the tool. We need a, a beautiful onboarding experience, really productive experience for designers first. We have time to get developers on board. That's the long-term strategy, of course. But first, we need to make sure that designers really appreciate what we're doing. That whenever they first encounter Pempot, they see it, they feel it's meant for them. Not as, um, as a gift from engineers. Let mm. take a look. This is what we built for you without asking you any questions, <laughs> but actually from designers and developers working together. So when the Figma gate happened, that is what we had. Mm. So the transition, the migration was quite smooth because it didn't feel like they were faking their interest here. They were truly excited. And there was many reasons. First, the tool is quite polished. So it was a nice experience. Second, they understood the value of SVG and owning your design forever. Like no strings attached. Worst case scenario, Pempot goes down. No worries. Your design is yours forever. It's just open standards, web standards, so no vendor locking. And then the open source nature, okay, my, develop, my peer developers are excited about that, but also the collaboration ethos between design and code is something that's a win-win for me. Mm. So what is, what is wrong with Pempot? Nothing is wrong with Pempot. Perhaps the only thing is I want, it, I want everything now. You know, I don't want to wait. I want that promise to be fulfilled. Well, we're working on it. So that's the reason why designers did have this wow or aha moment because it was always meant for them, not for engineers. Okay. And I think it took us, you know, we made some sacrifices along the way, meaning that we had to say no to some help, financial help from investors that would be obsessed about developer only, developer first communities. And we said, look, this is a hybrid community and we need designers to lead the conversation and to feel the product is theirs. And we were right. Okay, so I'm happy to say that in the end, it was the right approach. So first of all, then as an open source project and trying to be transparent in that way, do you have a public roadmap? Oh, yeah. Oh, you can go to our Tiger page. Yeah. So you go to our GitHub repo. If you're a developer, typically that's where you go. And you see a beautiful readme page mm -hmm. and you, can, you have links to every relevant resource that there is, then you have uh, community.pempo.hub. Community.pempo.hub is our community space, so it's a discourse yep. forum, quite tweaked in terms of the eye candiness. And then you go to our Tiger page and you see the backlog and the sprint, the current sprint. Mm -hmm. So many times the team is actually pointing to a user story that is they're working on during the sprint or just going to the backlog. So people can see also the priority of whatever they, most of the times what they ask for is already in the backlog and it's just a matter of looking at the priority. Mm -hmm. And since we have onboarding surveys and we ask questions and we have interviews, we ask, you know, we listen to the community and we manage to get, I think, the right priority. So the two biggest, you know, top priority feature requests that we have, like there, that is might be maybe blocking some migration from designers or from developers, is the auto layout, Figma's auto layout, which is a clear feature. And also like some way of having advanced components. So all the design tokens, the variables, the way to have design system scale up somehow, because they also have this glass ceiling. 
and they are frustrated at the moment. Design designers are frustrated that they cannot scale up. But that is for Penpod's January release, which is finally exiting beta. So we will have layout flex, which is I believe much better than auto layout, and advanced components. Then we have to go back and ask the question: You have now that. Now, really, what do you need to migrate? Because there are no excuses left. So I'm really looking forward to having that conversation when the two clearly from our service, data points, everything, the feature request that looks like they only care about that, it's the only thing that is blocking that migration, are delivered, mm -hmm. then what? Because I'm sure there's going to be more stuff. There's always more stuff. I think we know <laughs> in software that nothing is ever finished. And then to regress a little bit back to the, I have a second question and it's around like the fact that it's a open source project. And so I know, I don't know a ton about the option, at least what I'm gleaning on your site. And I know you, I can sign up and I'm a part of, uh, you know, kickstarting off a cloud based instance or something of that, like that. It makes me wonder, like, do you have the super base like model too, where like, if you want to self host, and run the product locally within your own network? Can you do that or? Of course. Yeah. This is the open source product that you can sort of imagine it is. Otherwise, we'll be kind of um, faking it. So we have the SaaS, the public cloud, yep. to make it super easy for people to try it out and just mm -hmm. be there and be productive and have their work there. But we have thousands of self-hosted instances of Pempot across the world. If you think about this, this is probably the last missing block in software pipeline. I mean, mm -hmm. that matters. And everyone agrees that design is more important than ever, that design is eating software faster than software is eating the world, that software is a key differentiator, that software is a key element in the critical path of innovation, however you put it. Design is key, and yet it remains like outside the software building pipeline, like in terms of tooling and full control. So people are deploying Pempot by the thousands. And what we're seeing is that one, two things in terms of demographics. One, it's bigger companies that are doing that. So the average team size is twice as big as a SaaS or if everyone is more into robust statistics, P95 is actually much better. It's seven on team size on SaaS and 14 on premise. But also the migration is coming from well, people not even using a tool, this being the first one they're, they're actually deploying. And if they're using one, they're using Sketch. Mm. So there is a leakage there from Sketch deployment, which is the only sort of desktop within corporate world. It's only for Mac, so it still has some limitations, but it's the only thing that some big corporations are allowed to have. And they were thinking, okay, but we we'd really would like to use Figma, but we can't. But now Pempo turns up and they say, okay, that's it. You know, we can have the best of both worlds. Yeah. So sure, we make it very easy, whether it's with Docker or uh, Potman or whatever. And then there are some on-premise as a service companies that are also offering you to, uh, you know, one-click self-deploy into a cloud that is not exactly yours, but it feels like it's your own infrastructure. I think there is a huge advantage for Pempot in the on-premise world. And so we're making it super easy for people to deploy it. Yeah, I am very happy to hear all of that yeah. because I am working for a client right now where everything mm -hmm. must be internal. Okay. We experience that a lot. So we've been having this problem of like they use Sketch and the Sketch files are passed around. They get out of date. You can't like collaborate on it. Yeah. So yeah, I'm going to be talking with a lot of people later about uh, <laughs> <laughs> how we can make this better. So uh, I'm super excited. This is a very familiar story to us. That use case is... Um, it's really, I mean, I'm not saying it's fantastic. I'm sorry, I feel you, right? But <laughs> it happens across the world. It happens particularly at big organizations. Yes. And that means like hundreds, uh, teams of hundreds of people that are stuck with something that they really don't like, but it's the only way. And Pempot is, is so refreshing. Yep. And also the, the desktop app, people are just deploying Pempot as a desktop app. 
you want to really enjoy the real-time collaboration there because are you giving your IP address to who, really? <laughs> but uh, all those weird use cases, solo players, also you can do that. So Yeah. So here's the thing is that we do a lot of work with what I call legacy enterprise organizations. Mm -hmm. And so they're not technology first. They're not SaaS organizations necessarily. They're employing like e-commerce into their org or whatever else. But I mean, you're talking about orgs that are, you know, 50, 100 years old and they've just got very different processes. Absolutely. But they have the need for online and they just cannot get off of on-prem data centers and the cloud is just a, a security concern that people that have been there for 20 plus years can't get their heads around. And it's really, mm. it's a really disparaging fight. And so they will bring things like GitLab or GitHub Enterprise and all these other developer-centric applications on-prem. And so here you go. For their designers, this is like a ready-made solution. So I love to hear that because, again, like Robbie We've had a lot of experience with clients that are exactly in their space, in this space. And they see all the talk and what's hot in the 10% of the developer world. But the reality is, is so many of us also work in these more legacy constraints and having options to improve tools and process in SDLC. And I think that design is a key part of that, the SDLC. Yeah. have definitely had a lot of experience as in like design being key element throughout that process and acceptance testing and things like that too. So again, being ingrained in the process early on, having software that works through for a team seems amazingly key for that exact use case. Our numbers say that when we interview designers working at those, as you say, legacy corporations, those UX UI designers will tell us that they are already using Pempot. They will tell us that it was their peer developers that told them about Pempod. Nine out of 10 designers in that world mm. um, admit that this was pre-FigmaGate. Perhaps now it's different. But pre-FigmaGate, we had this nine out of 10. And we get it because you can see a developer in ex constant exploratory mode. Mm -hmm looking for frameworks, database, anything that just enhances and promotes and evolves whatever new workflow they want to go in and then find out about Pempod because of the natural exposure they get to it. Perhaps those designers have were explored in exploratory mode a few years ago, but not anymore because why they would do that? They're trapped. And they get this fresh new tool from their developers and they try it out and they say, this is actually amazing. And the developer feels quite happy because, you know, they're helping their design peers and it's helping themselves too. This is a win-win again. And it's quickly going to be deployed and tested. And then what happens is that in those on-prem scenarios, the developer unknowingly starts using more and more Pempod because it's, it's meant for them too. So initially, the developer just was thinking about better tools, better workflows, for the people, not for me. This is just open source, so I can trust it. But what we're seeing is that designers are enjoying how much now developers are going into the designs, messing around, taking what they need, you know, leaving, whatever. So in a way, these legacy corporations are per capita or per second or per some unit of measure are accelerating faster in terms of new, more modern workflows than others because there's so much to gain for them. Still, they are legacy corporations, but this developer lobbies for Pempod to a designer, designer accepts that and then invites developers into a process and then everyone's involved. That is something that we are seeing more and more on on-premise. So looking forward to, to that. Yeah, yeah, for sure, me too. But let's go a little bit into some whatnot here with the, the time we have left. I'm very curious to hear about uh, the story you mentioned where you wrote a uh, role-playing game <laughs> and got expelled <laughs> for that. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I was 13 years old. I was uh, at school. And I, had I think I had read The Lord of the Rings a couple of years other than that, but uh, most importantly, I was into role-playing games. So Lord of the Rings, you know, Dungeons and Dragons, 
paranoia, and traveler, what else? Uh, they call it Kuflu, things like that, right? And I love math and physics and all that because that was vocational. So I decided to write down a role-playing game. I won't go into specifics about the theme of that role-playing game, but it was a role-playing game. And it was all about charts and numbers and stats, but there was some literature there, okay? And just it happened that a friend took it and just handed it over to a teacher. And a teacher looked at it and was like outraged at whatever she saw there. So I was expelled. The thing here is that I was formally expelled on no basis. Like I would go and say, why are you expelling me if the rules of the school state that this is just mid-level warning level? So perhaps temporary expel and not the ultimate, you know, expel. So I'm just have to find a new school, right? But they, they would just twist the rules in front of me. So I, there I was, 13 years old, with the director you know, the, of the school, arguing about the rules that they had set. And I was confronted with the harsh reality of that whoever sets the rules can twist the rules and just uh, go along with it. So I, I learned a lesson that day. Like I was rationally arguing that the specific product that I have created could not fit into the you know, long, you know, permanent um, expulsion, but actually just in two, three days. But yeah, this was a role-playing game. When you're 13 years old, you have your own fantasies and your dreams and you have friends and varying degrees of sexual maturity. And, you know, you just write what, what you think it's fine for a role-playing game. And um, a few days later, we got a call. So I was formally expelled. I was not going back that the uh, Bordeaux teachers had, you know, just sat down and said, we cannot spell this, this child. <laughs> this is so wrong. So it was uh, readmitted. So it was fun. I got back and I uh, got to finish my school and went to physics and all that. But I am glad that it happened because I was never ashamed of what I had done. And I saw this authority power playing by their own rules and not adhering to any code of honor or loyalty or consistency or honesty. It was all about what they thought it would be good to tell other people about an exemplary uh, measure here. So yeah, that happened. And um, fortunately, my parents didn't were really concerned about the being expelled, but not about what I had done. Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. I'm sorry, I don't want to go into the details of the role-playing itself, but... No, no, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we don't want to put you on the spot. This is a... You know, everyone <laughs> should feel comfy here. But kind of, I guess, around the same lines there of all the, the role-playing and everything. You mentioned you're a big uh, Tolkien fan. Yeah. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about brewing your own mead. Um, I think that kind of goes along with that theme too. Like it seems like you're trying to live out a lot of the things from the stories um, <laughs> and your hobbies. <laughs> yeah, of course we. I mean, this is this is uh, a cooperative here, like with Angela, my wife. We started with uh, with beer, but I think there's so much you can do in an urban space in terms of the the end-to-end process with beer. But me, it does allow you to just do everything. I mean, except for harvesting the uh, the honey so you don't have you don't have bees on your roof no we do have bees you know coming around uh, in our garden and i like to see them i think they're the, the lonely type the solitary bees you know there's, there's some of them so i fantasize about their stories and what they're looking here or whatever but yeah so actually yesterday we had our uh, winter batch so we call uh if it's pure meat we call that Ada Lovelace. That's, you know, um, oh. and if it's um, mellow male or fruity meat, we call that those batches Sorcia, which is from Prince, um, from Willow, the, the, um, the, the princess warrior. Yeah. yeah. So uh, it's Ada or Sorcia. So he, this one was Ada. And so we have four different types of, of honey and yeast and water and everything and our fermenter. And we have it in the, in the terrace. 
And it's actually quite delicious. We have sent some of our meat, you know, and bottles to tastings and and people say, oh, this is professional stuff, you know, you know, who's behind this? It's like, well, this is just 10 dishes <laughs> from our terrace. But yeah, we like it. And uh, it's just, just fun, really. But since we are Angela's physicists do, and we like to have all these measures and gravity and, and all that and tinker and experiment, this end-to-end process I really enjoy. And also, you know, you get to have some great stuff to drink. Very cool. Yeah, I uh, haven't tried anything myself. I was going to start a oh. distillery and like do my own whiskey and stuff and then realized how much work it was and like all the laws around it and stuff and was like, oh, no, I'm not going to mess with that. If you're familiar <laughs> with um, beer brewing, then mead is not that different. It's fermentation. Mm-hmm. So it's the same yeast concept, different yeast perhaps and different conditions, and but it's the same process. Distillery is quite a different yeah. avenue there. Yeah. Yeah. There's quite a bit more danger in the high <laughs> ethanol. Yeah. yeah. So there's that aspect of it. But uh, I'm from Kentucky. So, you know, we just drink it straight. <laughs> it doesn't really hurt me, but uh, probably Robbie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so are you in Madrid? Yeah. I'm in Madrid. Yeah. In Spain. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. I knew you were in Spain. Wasn't sure, but I guess it makes sense. Like, well, I mean, it could be Barcelona, Valencia, Seville, Bilbao, you know, many, many great cities. Aren't you supposed to say Barcelona? Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so I, I've spent about a month or so in Spain. Barcelona, of course. Back. Yeah. Yeah. 12 years ago. I spent some time in Barcelona as well. And so the Catalan and, and all of that. I, had, I stayed with some friends uh, from <laughs> Valencia. Very good. So, Very yeah. good. You go with a... Th- Yes, a lot of time in the southwest of Spain, actually. Loved it there. Just Southwest, so Cadiz, Huelva, Malaga. Yep, yep, yep. Actually stayed right outside of Cadiz. Wow, Cadiz is beautiful. Sevilla, also great. You know Spain pretty well. (laughs) A little bit, yeah. I did not get to go. So it's funny. So the year that I was there is the first year season that Cristiano Ronaldo was signed to Madrid. Okay. And so I couldn't get tickets to Real Madrid. Yep. Uh, yeah, like 2009. And I did get to go to a Barcelona game, though. And, you know, it's like it's an amazing atmosphere and all of that. Not my favorite team by any means, but are you a football soccer fan? I mean, what's going on right now? Yeah, so I used to be. And actually, I, I in the old days, I would um, have my role-playing game session at the local role-playing club in my mm-hmm. hometown. And then at the end of that vampire, the masquerade or role playing, you know, all the rings or whatever. Yeah. My dad actually would take me in the car or we would go to the Santiago Bernabeu, which is the state, the real Madrid stadium. Yes. So I had the, both extremes, the very much intellectual, you know, fantasy challenge and then the brutal sports fan. The thing is that I, I got wary of the hooligans. Oh. So this was 20 years ago. It was a time where I was not enjoying the the, the chance and the um, the aggressiveness of just a small portion of the of the fans, but still noisy yeah. and allowed. Not anymore, but at the time they were. It was important because they were, you know, just creating this vibe in the stadium. So I, why I'm here, I'm not enjoying those supporting chants or anything. So. I decided I would, Real Madrid was not playing super nice also, so it was a bit boring. Mm. So I just, it faded away. So I'm a huge fan, but it's fun of a good soccer match. Yeah. Uh, and of course, I feel for Real Madrid and my parents and everything, you know, we got that Real Madrid um, in the blood. But um, I was there like in the stadium for years and then decided... No, it's not for me. Not for me. Yeah, you you were pre-Galacticos. Yeah. And so things obviously changed then, and, and there's been quite a bit of success since then. So, yeah, that's true. I didn't realize that was a thing in Spain as well, but I know internationally in general. It's 20 years ago, so it's been a time. England went through their their thing in the 70s, 80s, and 90s and yeah. sort of like expunged a lot of that out. Yeah, uh, the only places I've ever still kind of experienced that is Italy can mm-hmm. still very much kind of be that. I mean, there's like plexiglass there. <laughs> Tifosi. Tifosi. In between you. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. And then uh, in Argentina, but they put so much space between the field and the players. It's almost <laughs> like you're in a different place. Yeah. 
Uh, good to know. I always want to ask that, especially of uh, any European guests, but just because I am very much interested, involved, and like I'm, I'm a fanatic around football, soccer. I know this is a yeah. cool thing right now in the U.S. to be like, it's called soccer. You didn't invent it, so I don't know. But <laughs> yeah, like what's my feeling and take? And I have lots of friends in Europe too. And there's a lot less people than I expected originally 20 years ago that are into sport than, mm. than I thought. But, you know, if they are, then tends to be. That. I'm into all different sports now. Oh, yeah? What are you into? Oh, archery. Oh, yeah. Tried that once. It's bruised the hell out of my forearm. So good for you. <laughs> you got a bad coach then. You got a bad coach if you have that. Yeah, because when I pulled back and then it like hit me in the arm a couple of times. So I had like big bruises there. And yeah. got to put the guard on your arm, right? Yeah. That's for babies. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're supposed not to hit your, your arm. Yeah. But still is a, is a nice safety measure to have. Yeah, indeed. So yeah, traditional archery in particular. Because, uh, you know, archery is huge. So many, many different disciplines. But it, my guess is chat archery. But yeah. Mm -hmm. So one of the questions Robbie had on here, and I think it's a very obvious one we should bring about. Have you seen the new Amazon Lord of the Rings show? <laughs> I think I'm going to uh, be a bit unexpected here. Because, as you know, I'm a big Tolkien nerd. I really am. I don't need to prove it. I know I am. <laughs> yeah. And I haven't watched the original trilogy by Peter Jackson. Wow. That is interesting. Yeah. Why that happened is I do you know the Bakshi films, the uh, the ones that are, were animated that was, you know, yes. back in the eighties. So I, I, I watched those mm -hmm. and then went back to my reading of the Lord of the Rings because that's what I do every other year. Mm -hmm. And I could not picture my own Galadriel or my own Aragorn or my own Hobbiton or my own Edoras. I had a hard time in my mind while I was reading. I was used to just see it. And for a couple of years, I could not see anything other than the Bakshi film. Mm. So by the time the uh, P.G. Jackson trilogy was announced, and I'm in the Tolkien Society in Spain, so I'm a founding member, so I know a lot of people, everyone was excited except me because i said if that happened with an animation film what could happen with a, do i need it how many years is going to take for me to refresh you know my own because it, it changes every time so i decided not to watch that trilogy just to protect my own mental image of middle earth elves mm. you know uh, people's accents colors atmospheres and i haven't regret that so i haven't yeah so the amazon series was a different question mm -hmm. if it was going to be a great tv series but not loyal or faithful to the canon then i would watch it and we have this arrangement here with angela if it's going to be a great fantasy tv series with no relation whatsoever to Tolkien's world that who cares? We can watch it and enjoy it. Yeah. It turns out it was neither <laughs> a faithful TV series nor a good TV series. So I haven't watched it. I could watch it because I now know that it's just not random stuff, but uh, not particularly... They're taking liberties, right? And they're creating their yeah, own... Yeah, liberties are great to have. But I've spoken to my you know Tolkien friends and they say... It's hard to find Tolkien in the series. It's hard to find it. You have to be really like trying hard. And you shouldn't be trying hard. It should be obvious. Mm. And so, uh, I don't know. I, perhaps I will watch it. But I don't have uh, any comments, like official comments for Tolkien that you won't have that from me because you won't have even a commentary from the original trilogy, of course, not to mention the Hobbit films. Right. Those were not even um, in the question. <laughs> so, sorry. Gotcha. Sorry. Uh, that's a... Uh, no. no worries. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. There's no wrong answer to these things about yourself, you know, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's your favorite color? Wrong. Blue. Yeah. <laughs> well, that my favorite color is 761 CEC. Mm. It's an hexadecimal. So that's. Oh, OK. Mm. It's a kind of purple. Nice. OK. Interesting. Real Madrid purple. We're going to tie back to these like subconscious things. <laughs> no, or... no, 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 no. That's it. <laughs> yeah, we uh we are a little bit over time here. Uh, is there anything we missed talking or anything you'd like to plug uh, before we end here? 
first, I really had a great time. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. I'm looking forward to um, seeing what people say about uh, Penpot's uh, GA in January. So it's really, you know, in a few weeks. Because we're going to deliver a ton of great stuff, inspect mode, flex layouts, advanced components. And things are, uh, we're going to start developing the plugin architecture. And I think we're going to get even more love from the community. And since we are very transparent and quite honest about what we're doing, we're not having any hidden agendas or anything. We publish everything. We have public roadmaps. We have uh, frequent live streams. I think uh, we'll get even more people drawn to helping us. So, no, just looking forward to that. Really excited to see what people say about our next May release. I'm looking forward to evangelizing it. Cool. <laughs> Thanks so much. Yeah, same. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. If you liked it, please subscribe. Leave us some five-star reviews. We appreciate it, and we will catch you next time. Thanks for listening to Whiskey Web and Whatnot. This podcast is brought to you by ShipShape and produced by Podcast Royale. If you like this episode, consider sharing it with a friend or two and leave us a rating, maybe a review, as long as it's good. You can subscribe to future episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more info about ShipShape and this show, check out our website at shipshape.io.